If you have a Bible, you can open up to Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 5. I'm going to be teaching today from verse 5 down to verse 11. If you can, I'd love for you to stand with me. I'm going to read it. um, And then after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord that he would be amazingly kind to us to give us his word. Starting in verse 5. Desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, uh, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, um, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you've given to us in Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and teach us all, including me, um, to see and prize and treasure Jesus Christ above all things. And as we look at a text that certainly does um, challenge us in regard to things we do, to stop doing certain things, that, uh, and they can feel law-based, that we won't... Um, Receive it only as law, but of course, uh, you'll help me and all of us that will, our minds who are believers, be pointed to the gospel, the good news uh, of what Christ has done for us. And so, uh, I was pointing out one thing, and I want to make sure you see it again, because what Paul is doing here in this little section of Colossians is given a couple ifs and then a couple thens, and the two ifs and thens go together. Can you turn up the house lights just a little bit? I'm sorry. I just like it a little bit brighter. There we go. There we go. So there's a little two ifs and thens. I want to make sure you see them. So 2.20 is if you died with Christ. And then 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ. So we've, he's, these two ifs started out that we've died with Christ and we've been raised. And now he's going to give us two thens. Now I'm only going to do the first then. The second then will be next week. But um, you can see here, starting in verse 5, put to death therefore. Now that therefore in the Greek is also then. So then put to death. And then you can see the second, of course, in uh, verse 12, put on. So he's saying, put to death these things. And after you put to death these things, put on these things. And the on, of course, are things that are related to Christ. So that's next week. Uh, But starting here at verse five, what we're seeing is that he's telling us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he's going to make us some lists here. Now, um, as we've talked about uh, last week we saw imperatives and uh, indicatives. And in- indicatives are things about God to believe. Imperatives are, ob- are commandments to obey. And the commandments to obey, even though Paul wrote them, he wrote by the power of the Spirit, therefore they're from God. And so these are, these are things that God wants us to obey. And so we'll see those kinds of things today. We'll see some commands in which the Lord is telling us. And it starts out in verse 5, put to death therefore. So uh, Put to death, therefore, what he says is earthly in you. Now, that word earthly, of course, if you remember, is a repeat word from last week. So if you look at verse 1 and 2, the the command that we saw from last week, the one command out of all the indicatives, the imperative is seek the things that are above. And you can see it in verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above, not on earth. Uh, So we we know we want to obey that. We talked about there's ways that we can do that. Paul's going to expound more on what it means in verse 1 and 2 to seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. And that's why he says, don't put put to death the things that are earthly. So one of the ways that we can 
obey this command in verse 1 and 2 to seek and set our minds on the things that are above are going to be told to us in verse 5. Namely, killing these specific sins. By putting to death things that are earthly, we're freed now to obey or seek and set our minds on the things that are above. So he says, therefore, in verse 5, put to death, therefore it is earthly. So, or therefore, kill. That's in light of these things thus far, kill. Kill what? Kill sin. So I feel like when we're in Colossians 3, 5, and you're going to look at put to death, therefore, you need to take just a brief excursion over to Romans eight thirteen to understand uh, the command to kill, the command to kill sin. And what does that mean? So in Colossians 3, 5, it says put to death. Um, and then he moves straight into two lists of basically five. There's a, a sixth one I see in the second one in verse eight, but we'll get to that. But we should take a brief excursus when we see Colossians 3, 5, therefore put to death and couple it with the same kind of command given to us in Romans 8 and put those two verses together, Romans eight thirteen and Colossians 3, 5 together because Colossians 3, 5 put to death. Uh, Romans eight thirteen is similar, but has one little three word phrase that's added to it that's so crucial. So if you look at Romans 8, chapter, uh, 8 verse 13 it says for if you live according to the flesh you'll die and then it says this but and here it is by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you'll live so we're commanded in 8 13 to put the death put to death the deeds of the body or sin but it adds that little phrase here by the spirit and while I could probably go into by the spirit and preach a whole sermon I can't um, and so what I want to make sure we see here is that in Colossians 3 5 when we're told to put to death uh, these particular sins, we are to do it by the Spirit. We, this is not a white-knuckle it, do-it-all-by-yourself kind of thing. The commands to kill sin are told to us um, assuming that we're going to do it by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whenever we're believers, residing in us, giving us the power that we need to kill sin. And so in Colossians 3, 5, when you're told to kill these sins, this is not a Lone Ranger project. This is, of course, by the Spirit. You can see, if you want to read uh, a couple verses that explains theologically how that works out, just write this down. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Just write that down. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And you see how we and God work together in our sanctification. Um, so I will say this really quickly, though, um, regarding uh, killing sin. To kill sin, I, I'll, I'll say there's two things, right? Number one, starve it. Starve it. Like, things die when they don't eat. Um, if you don't feed it, it won't live. And so, uh, take the steps to starve sin in your life. Whatever it is, um, as, as Christ has told us in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Take extreme measures to kill sin in your life. He's, uh, he's using, you know, like, exaggeration to make the point. And so starve it. Whatever it is, just don't feed it. The second thing, of course, is that's just, you know, I can do it by myself. But the second thing, just as one little small thing, is you need to use the sword. You need to use the sword. In Ephesians, um, Paul uh, recounts for us in, in the book of Ephesians at the very end the whole armor of God. And, of course, all the weapons are defensive except one. Uh, it's the word of God. And so uh, the amazing gift that God has given us is his word. And so I've said this countless amounts of times. I've pointed it out countless amounts of times that the word is in the armor of God. It's the only offensive weapon that we have. But use the word. If you want to, I, I was writing this and I, I wrote use the word. And then in front of the word word, I put the little parenthetical S 
So use the sword or word, same thing. So I just fi- discovered that this week, and I thought that was rather clever. Anyway, um, so uh, to kill sin, starve it, and use the sword, use the word. Like, that means, like, whatever sin I struggle with, find a verse in the Bible or a set of verses in the Bible that talk about that, memorize it. That's now I'm using the word. So when the sin comes, I recount that. And I use that. So if it's, a, if, it's, if it's a short verse, it's like a dagger. If it's a long verse, it's like a really long sword. And so whatever sin comes at me, I recall those things. And I, the Holy Spirit brings those things to mind. I'm, I've had those texts memorized. And I use it to put to death the sin. No, I don't want to do this because here's what the Lord's, the Lord's word says about it. And here's why I shouldn't do it, etc. So use the word. I, I, I don't want to go too long because I want to actually preach this text. So um, here are the lists. And we should talk about these two particular lists. There's two lists given to us. One's in verse 5. One's in verse 8. Verse 5 is primarily about sexual sin. Verse 8 is primarily about anger. Um, and the list of five and the list of six are in that category. Um, and he's going to give us two lists that, uh, that Paul is going to say of example, sample, lists, are, are sins in our lives that we should kill. So remember, these are not the exhaustive list. Like, okay, just take care of those 11 sins, all good. That's, that's not exhaustive. Uh, they just include some of the lists. This isn't like, knock these 11 out and I'm all good. Um, instead, they're, you, Paul's using lists uh, that, that face most Christians. And you may say to yourself, is this something that's important? Is this something that I should really consider? I want to read a, a quote from Martin Lock- Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the doctor, says this. Uh, be careful, talking about the importance of making sure you kill a sin in your life. Be careful how you treat God, my friends. You may say to yourselves, I can sin against God, and then, of course, I can repent and go back and find God whenever I want. You try it, and uh, you will sometimes find that not only you cannot find God, but that you don't even want to. You will be aware of a terrible hardness in your heart, there's nothing you can do about it. And then you suddenly realize that God is punishing you um, in order to reveal your sinfulness to you and your vileness to you. And there is only one thing you can do. You turn back to him and say, oh God, don't go on dealing with me judiciously or judicially, though I deserve it. Soften me. Soften my heart. Melt me. I cannot do it. Only you can. And you cast yourself utterly upon his mercy and his compassion. So the point of reading that is, of course, we need to kill sin so that we don't get to the point to where we, he says, and you don't even want to. We don't want that. We don't want that. And so um, verse, first list is here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, it is earthly in you. And he says, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness. And so uh, in the two lists of sexual sins versus anger, these sins uh, of sexual sin are more personal uh, while the lists of anger are more social. Uh, the, the sexual sin are things usually you're kind of committing in your mind, sometimes against others, but not usually. The second list of anger are sins that you're committing against others largely. Um, but there's something even regarding this list that you should no- notice where we have sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Um, there's a movement from an outward manifestation in sexual morality and it's moving in towards yourself when you finally get to covetousness, which is the uh, inward cravings of the heart. And so the list moves from kind of things you do with your hands uh, and things that you're doing uh, to the way your mind thinks. It's moving inward. 
So from one to the next. So sexual morality, we'll take them one, two, three, four, five. We won't spend tons of time in it because I do want to get to the reasons why, which is the gospelicious part. So um, sexual immorality, uh, the first word is the word in Greek, of course, porneia. Obviously, it's where we find our word pornography and it, fi- it finds its roots. Porneia has a very broad meaning and it just means this. this anything that falls into the category of sexual morality, porneia, is um, in the Bible, forbidding any and all kinds of illicit sexual activity outside of the marriage bonds between a man and a woman. So inside the marriage bonds between a man and a woman, good. Everything else besides that, sexual morality. Everything else out besides that. So anything and everything outside of that definition falls into sexual morality and must be killed. Must be killed. In the life of every Christian, it should not exist. Um, And so, uh, if you are married and you're partaking uh, in sexual morality, then you need to have it killed. If you are not married and you are partaking in any type of sexual immorality, you need to kill it. And the full understanding of of this idea of sexual morality will be further explained in the next three. But sexual morality, again, is anything outside of if it's marriage between a man and a woman. Um, And of course, it's assuming that it's ongoing. If it's stopped and you've repented from it, you're forgiven, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So impurity is the next one. Uh, Catharsia, this is moral uncleanness or or filthiness. Uh, And you can ask, how is it different from sexual morality? Paul's moving from the act of sexual morality into the evil thought or the motive or the intention here in the impurity. Uh, God's commanding that we put to death not just the acts, but also the evil thoughts and and motives that regard sexual morality as something that that one would want to do. Uh, Jesus, of course, addresses this idea in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, but I say to you, everyone who just looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And so uh, not just the act, but the thought is to be put to death. Evil behavior begins with evil thoughts, as John MacArthur says. Therefore, the battle against all sin, especially sexual sin, begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. And so we want to take, as it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verse 5 says, uh, take all of our thoughts captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 5, I'm pretty sure. Um, the next one is passion. This is pathos. Uh, it describes a person that's just dominated by their emotions. Uh, and in context, it's sexual passions. They're dominated by sexual passions. Uh, and they're being set loose in their body. And it's a shameful passion that's uh, leading to sexual excesses. Uh, and that is to be killed. Next is Evil desire, desire by itself, epithumia, not a bad thing. It can go positive and negative, but he uses the canine evil desire, the evil desires. And so it says evil longings are in the context of this particular uh, kind of uh, list. It's the sexual lust that's created in the mind where you have an evil desire and it's manifested into itself in the natural man and it just controls him. And so uh, it's, it represents basic carna- carnality. Uh, someone who's totally separated from God. And then lastly, he points to all this. Remember, it's starting externally and coming in. And then he says, covetousness. It's interesting, right? Covetousness. He he lands there finally uh, and says, this of course, covetousness is made up. Play a nixie or whatever it's called. It's two Greek words. Play on more, exo to have, to have more. This is what covetousness is defined as. It's, it's to have more, to need to have more. It's utter greed. 
Uh, it's an insatiable desire to always need to have more. And the insatiable desire to always need to have what's forbidden. It's covetousness. And so this sin, sin, as he says, manifests itself as covetousness. And he says, which is idolatry? It's the worship of something other than God. And so covetousness, the reason why he, he finishes, finishes that is because it's the root of all sin. It's really, the, in the end, the root of all things. All things that are kind of the fruit hanging on the tree of sexual morality and lustful thoughts, they still come down to why I'm coveting. And so uh, it's the root of all forms of not just sexual sin, but all. Barclay explains it this way uh, about the sin of covetousness being the root of all things. Uh, it's therefore a sin with a very wide range of covetousness. It's the desire for money, then it's going to lead to theft. Theft is the fruit, but the reason why is you have a desire for money. If it's desire for prestige, it's evil ambition. If it's a desire for power, it's sadistic tyranny. If it's a desire for a person, it's sexual sin. So in Paul's mind, sexual morality leads to impurity, etc., but it finds its root at covetousness. And so we should be aware of these sins as Christians and put them to death by the Spirit. By, by the Spirit. And the way you kill sin usually as you go to the root. You can knock off the fruit, but another one will grow. Knock off the fruit, another one will grow. So we don't want to just spend our, why am I coveting here? What, why am I coveting? And chop that off, and then no more bad fruit is being born. So uh, if you keep going, it says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, uh, and these you once too walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. We're going to come back to six and seven. Uh, those are huge. Those are important verses. But I, I gave the first list, uh, and I want to go to the second list, which doesn't deal with sexual morality, but, all, but instead deals with anger. And I'm going to come back to verse 6 and 7, and I'm also going to couple it with the end of 9 and 10. Um, but anyway, so look at verse 8 there. And what's, when it says, uh, you must put them all away, and then it says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And then I'm going to grab that next little phrase, do not lie. These, these are all... Sins that we commit as anger and, and using our words when we do it. These sins, I said, uh, as opposed to the other, which are kind of more personal but sometimes can be sinned. These, this list is, are sins that aren't so personal but they're more social. These things are things that we commit largely against other people. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Um, and it's saying that as a believer, you must put these things away. It's interesting, right? Paul grabs two big categories for believers and says, one of the things that you're likely going to still struggle with is sexual sin and your anger. Find these things and the root cause of them and put them to death by the Spirit. Put to death. You might have been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years right now, and you'd be saying, that's probably true. Those things are things that that Christians for a long time can still struggle with, and we need to um, go after those things by the power of the Spirit. So the next one, is, so if we're looking at that little list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, don't lying. Anger, uh, deep smoldering resentfulness. Uh, it's, an, it's bitterness. It's a settled, uh, angry attitude of a person. Uh, I'm just an angry person. John MacArthur says the provocations, just so we understand where this anger comes from, provocations are being provoked. Provocations don't create this anger but merely reveal that the, ang- that the person is an angry person and they give him a target for his fury. Um, in other words, so like uh, 
If you've read a book on marriage by Tim Keller, forget the name of it, Meaning of Marriage, uh, he has this little illustration where he talks about a bridge. Um, and so he said that there was a car that would go over this bridge, and it, whenever it would go onto it, uh, the bridge itself would start cracking, uh, and then you'd you know, back the car off. And when that would happen, the car didn't cause the cracks on the bridge. The bridge was already weak. The car going on it revealed that it was already that way. And this is the same thing. Um, if you are provoked, it, that person's not making you angry. You already cracked. It's showing and revealing to you that this is who you were already. And so that's, that's the point that he's making, is that this anger is that uh, deep settledness of the heart attitude. And we don't want that. We, we should not have that. And then when that's the case, then you have the next one, wrath, that it, it manifests itself out. Wrath is the sudden outburst of angers. It's like putting straw on a fire. Boom, that's, the, that's wrath. Um, it flares up briefly and it's gone. It's closely tied to anger. So anger is the churning attitude that you have that boils over into wrath. And so uh, we don't want to have wrath. It's, it's not something that we should, uh, that should um, be what Christians look like. Uh, that you don't misunderstand something. So here we're going to see in verse 7, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so you're like, wait a second. <laughs> verse 8 makes it a, a sin. And then verse 6 says, God has wrath. What's going on? So just remember, um, we are utterly sinful and God is not. So when we have anger and wrath, it will manifest itself into sin because God is perfectly holy. His wrath, his anger is always perfectly um, righteous. And so we aren't God. And so to say, oh, wait a second, what about God here? He can't be wrathful. That's just nonsense, really. It's God, because he's perfectly righteous, is always appropriately angry about the right things and never, ever boils over into unjust ways. Um, to give you an example, like if you knew a child was being hurt intentionally and you felt anger towards the person that was doing it uh, because that's not right, that's pretty just. That's, that's righteous anger. Now, what you do can be unjust after that if you just, you know, fly off the handle and do something wrong. But the feeling of saying hurting a child's wrong, that's, that's not inappropriate. And so as an illustration, this is what I mean about God. He, he always acts perfectly righteous, even in his anger and wrath. Back to the text. So anger, wrath, and then we see malice. Malice, this is a, a general term for moral evil. Um, Gordon Lightfoot says, the vicious nature which is bent on wanting to do harm to others. And so you're, you're wanting to do harm to others with your speech. And in context, it's, 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 of course, doing harm with evil speech. Malice is an evil force that will destroy fellowship. If someone is practicing malice uh, in a context of a community, it's going to destroy the fellowship. It's going to destroy the fellowship. And then you have the next one. So you have anger, wrath, malice, slander. Slander is literally this, the Greek word blasphemia. So like that you can blaspheme God, but you can also blaspheme others. This is blaspheming someone. So this is when you take anger, wrath, and malice, those first three together, and it manifests itself into what's called slander or blasphemia. Um, the believers, uh, the believer in Christ must make sure their speech is not marred by insults and disparaging remarks towards other people. Uh, it can be, slander can be vilifying someone with lies and gossips. With gossip. And Christians are, of course, in Titus 3 2, commanded not to participate in this. 
And so this should not be something that's in the life of a Christian. And then lastly, you can see obscene talk. You shouldn't use obscene talk as necessarily like dirty talk or whatever. It's more abusive speech. It's best understood as derogatory speech that's intended to hurt someone intentionally. Um, the cumulative effect of the previous four t- finds its place in obscene talk. And so it's abusive talk trying to hurt others. I can remember the first time, uh, I don't know when this was, a long time, seminary or so, uh, whenever I read this verse uh, that I'm going to read to you, I'm, I'm using it as kind of a cumulative thought as we got to obscene talk. Uh, when I read this verse, I remember thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> so thus far we've talked about, we've talked about anger, wrath, malice, and slander. Uh, in obscene talk, I want to read you a text that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Uh, and it should make us all pause and really start considering about the way we speak. He says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12, 36. I just remember reading that like 20 years ago. Like, wow, that's really there. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And I've speak, spoken a lot of careless words, but I shouldn't, right? We should not. Uh, as Christians, our words should be measured and loving and caring. Um, and sometimes they're certainly not. And Jesus finishes that little list in verse 9. Some commentators say it's just five. Some commentators add on this, this lying. That some, the reason why the commentators want it to be five, because that first one was five, and this one is five. And when you get to 312 and he tells you to put on, it's a list of five, and they like they like symmetry. Five, five, and five. See there? But I think lying goes there. So I, I'm adding in there and I'm throwing out the symmetry. But it's still kind of symmetrical because it's like five, six, five. So anyway. Um, so do not lie to one another. Um, Jesus says in John eight forty four, summary of what Jesus says in eight forty four that Satan's the father of lies. And that when the Pharisees lied, they were being like their father, Satan. And so that means lying has no p- place in the life of Christians because God's our father and not Satan. And so lying is not something that Christians practice because God's our father. Satan's not our father. He's the father of lies. And so um, lying, Calvin says, is here Jesus is condemning all sorts of cunning and uh, base artifices of deception. Lying doesn't just have to be a word, right? It can be not telling. It can be withholding uh, information that could also help the situation. Uh, And so thus far, we've seen these kind of two lists and, and Paul and MacArthur looks at these two lists and he says, it's not unnecessary or it is necessary here for Paul to urge those who are believers in Christ and partakers of the risen life to still kill sin in their lives. It's because the battle for holiness is still being fought in the life of every single Christian. And so the battle for holiness is, is there. It's real. It's always happening. And it's something that when Paul tells us to do it, we should take heed and want to do it. Now, those are the two things that I wanted you to see. Now we're getting to the encouraging part. <laughs> uh, you may say, um, why does God want me to do this? God's going to give us some reasons. Some of you are like, I don't need reasons. God said it. I'm just going to do it. I'm supposed to do it. That's all I need. Some of you aren't like that. And so uh, he's going to give us some reasons why here. And there's, there's, there's three reasons why that we should want to kill sin in our lives. And when we say kill sin in our lives, we can also jump up to verse one and two and say, and that means setting our mind on the things in heaven, seeking the things that are in heaven. So here's why. There's three reasons why. If you look at verse six, on the count of these, the wrath of God 
is coming. Reason one to kill sin. Sin brings God's judgment. That's a pretty good reason, right? Sin brings God's judgment. The wrath of God is coming. Uh, Arthur Pink is a theologian, describes God's judgment. He says it is his eternal detestation or dislike. Detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and the indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. So um, God's judgment is coming on those who are sinners. Unrepentant, of course. Um, And this means that unbelievers will receive the full force of God's judgment. So if you're in Christ and you're like, well, I'm in Christ, I think I've... I think I've kind of missed that. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to get the full force of God's judgment since I'm in Christ. So maybe I don't have to kill sin since I'm in Christ. L- let, me, let me read this to you. I think this is good. Um, we still don't want to be like an unbeliever. Here's how MacArthur explains it. This is good. Paul is not warning us in this particular, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is not warning us Christians that if we sin, we're going f- to feel the full wrath of God. We won't. This is for unbelievers. So if you're in Christ, I'm not saying that you'll, you're going to feel the wrath of God. You won't. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. But he is, he is saying this. Rather, he is saying those who are Christ's, who have been made one with him, who love him, who serve his glory, would certainly not want to participate in the kinds of behaviors and thoughts that are characteristic of the people that are going to feel his eternal wrath. The children of God would certainly not want to act like the children of wrath. If you're in Christ, you won't experience this judgment. But why would you want to be like those who will? We're wholly different. Reason one, sin brings judgment. Don't be like the one that will receive judgment. Now, keep going in verse 7. In these, you too, those are good, once walked. Reason number two, sin is a part of your past. That's who you were. Now, we're going to get into that a little bit in just a second with our third reason. But sin is a part of our past. Before Christ, you walked in those things, which means now in Christ, you shouldn't have an appetite for those things anymore. You shouldn't have an appetite. Spurgeon, this is really good. Christian, what hast thou to do with sin? Hath it not cost thee enough already? Burnt child, will you play with fire? What? When? When hast thou already been in the jaws of the lion? Wilt thou step another time into his den? Have you not had enough of the old serpent? Did he not poison all your veins once? And will you play in the hole of the asp and put your hand inside of the deadly serpent's den a second time? Oh, don't be mad and foolish. Did sin ever actually yield real pleasure? Did you find solid satisfaction in sin? If so, go back to your old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delights you. But inasmuch as sin never actually did give what it promised to bestow, but deluded you with lies, don't for a second ancient bond snared by the old fowler. Be free and let the remembrance of that ancient bondage forbid you to ever enter into it again. Sin is a part of your past. Why would anyone who's been made rich, want to return to the slums to live in poverty. Why would you? Now you can make a case so you can go reach people, but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about sin. 
Sin is a part of your past. That's what the gospel is trying to tell you. You don't have an appetite for that anymore. Starve it. You don't have to. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you, because of Jesus, you have overcome all of those things. You are more than conquerors. Which leads us to our third one. So, sin is a part of our past. Put it, you can put it the third one. Um, you put off the old self. That's what we're saying in number two. He's going to restate it again in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, do not lie to one another. Here it is. Seeing that you put off the old self. That's the same way of saying you once walked in that. You put off the old self with its practices. And then verse 10, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. So the old man's been put away and you have a new, you have a new man. And now I want to make sure we're, we're really keying in on what Paul's trying to tell us here in verse, into verse nine, into verse 10, because this is, this is remarkably awesome. All right. When he says, you've put off the old self with this new practices and you put on the new self. Put off. Put off. Uh, in context in the Greek, put off. This phrase is better understood of someone stripping away all their filthy rags. Um, you've worked out in the yard or whatever. You've been doing something outside all day. Um, and your clothes are disgusting. They're sweaty. They're gross. They're dirty. Uh, and they, they, they can't even be washed to be to worn again. There's no salvaging it. They're just, the only thing that should happen is those clothes, they're garbage and they must be thrown away. That's what we do with the old man. We throw him in the trash. There's no saving it. When he says here, put off the old man. It's take off the nasty, disgusting work clothes that you've worn in all day that are gross. They're ripped up. They're totally unsalvageable and throw it away. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new's come. And then it says, of course, you've put off the old set with his practices. You've thrown away the old garbage of that old man, that's what he was, and you put on the new self, and you put on the new self. The new man has been put on. This is the regenerate self. Now here is, um, here's the theological danger that we can walk into when we think that. The, the regenerate self is emphatically not the version 2.0 of you. It wasn't FUD 1.0 was garbage, and now I've put on the new self, oh, I've just put, I've upgraded it's FUD 2.0. That's not what's happening here. That is not what he's wanting us to see. Instead, the new man is not FUD 2.0. The new man is Jesus. It's not the new man of you. It's only Christ. This is why it's so awesome. Because you didn't get an upgrade or else you would just, the 2.0 is going to, you know, 3.0 is coming out. You're going to get garbaged again, right? There is no garbage in Jesus, Never thought I was going to say that sentence. But um, the new man is Christ. You're literally in the new self in Christ's righteousness. So you put off the old self and you put on the new self. And the new self is Jesus. It's not an upgrade of you. This is where it's awesome. Salvation has transformed you to where the old man is gone and is replaced by the new man, Christ. Do you believe that? This is what's true of you if you're in Christ. Last week we talked about being hidden in Christ. Today we're talking about being clothed with Christ. And so there's no appetite for that because Jesus, whom you've been clothed with, has no appetite for those lists of sins. And that's who you are now. You're in Christ. So he says, this is where it gets pretty awesome. 
Um, the old self is gone with his practices. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in just knowledge. Right? I'm just, I, was, I figured it would be holiness, right? You be, we talked about killing sin, being renewed in, it would make more sense, holiness after the image of its creator. And it says knowledge. It says knowledge. Why knowledge? Why not holiness or love or devotion? Calvin says this. Uh, that it says knowledge, which is not just bare, simple knowledge, but it is the knowledge that is given to us by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that is lively and effectual. So it's the kind of knowledge that sets us on fire and transforms the whole man. That's what we need mostly is knowledge to remember to preach the gospel to ourselves. What I need is to remind myself that I'm not the old man that went to the garbage, but now I'm in Christ. That's what's renewing you constantly so that you will gospel yourself and gospel your church family. That's not you. You have Christ now. And so this is the kind of knowledge that sets us on fire so that we remember these things. And then to conclude, he goes into verse 11 here. Here there's not Greek or Jew. He's, he's doing the contrast, right? Um, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ, going back to the, the new man, it's all Christ. He's he is all, and he's in all. And so Christ is everything, the all-sufficient Lord and Savior. He's all that matters, and it's spirit-mediated and dwelling in all believers. Now, it doesn't matter what racial, religious you are, or cultural, or social background you have, whoever you are, if you're in Christ, it guarantees that this um, gradual perfection or being sanctified is happening in the new man because you're in Christ. You're being renewed constantly with full knowledge according to the image of God that's in us. Therefore, Christ now is the preeminent one. He's the all-sufficient Savior. He's the only one you need. Christ is all and is in all things in us. Do you believe this? Do you live like this is true day by day? Do you want to tell others that this is something that they should know? Do you tell them? I mean, this is the best news ever. The old man is gone and we've literally put on the new self. So let's, let's conclude with this. I want to make sure that we feel, because I know uh, it can feel kind of law, and I want to make sure we balance it with good news. And so um, Paul does uh, gospel the, re- the readers. He, re- he gospels us in verse 10 when he tells us that we have our new self. Uh, and he reminds us in verse 11 that it's all about Christ, that Christ is in all and is in all. Um, and it's all about Christ and his righteousness. Uh, Luther has once been kind of famously said, said to us regarding the gospel. This is in his, his uh, Galatians commentary. He says, the gospel <laughs> cannot be beaten into our ears enough or too much. That means I literally can't tell you the good news enough. The gospel cannot be beaten into our ears enough or too much. Yes, though we learn it and though we understand it, yet there is no one who takes a hold of it perfectly and believes it with all his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh to disobey the spirit. And so we want to remind ourselves of who we are in the gospel. Remind yourselves of who you are in the gospel. John Bunyan had this revelation once when he realized one day that my righteousness is in heaven. One day I was passing in the field and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest all was still not right, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. And this is where you need to hear the gospel. And I thought as well when I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand there, I say, He is my righteousness, so that whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God cannot save me. He lacks my righteousness because you have the new man. 
Um, for that was just before. I, I also say that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better or my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. And did my chains fall off indeed? Now I went home rejoicing um, for the grace and love of God. Here I live for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, the thought Christ, Christ. There was nothing before my eyes but Christ. So though the, the law and the commands to obey might weigh heavy on your heart as we're supposed to kill sin, remember that for us, our righteousness is in Christ. And when this gospel permeates a church and we live um, with this um, ever-growing understanding of who we are in Christ and that sin no longer defines us and now the gospel does, the way we love each other, the way we're united, the way we treat each other is vastly different. It creates churches um, that are amazing. I'm gonna con- conclude with this. This is, what, this is what the gospel creates. These are the kinds of churches. This is a j- quote from John Piper. The gospel creates churches that are, he loves hyphens, so just get ready for a lot of hyphens. The gospel creates churches that are God-exalting, Christ-admiring, spirit-filled, Bible-enjoying, grace-preaching, convenience-defying, cross-embracing, risk-taking, selfishness-crucifying, gossip-silencing, prayer-saturated, future-thinking, outward-reaching, and beautifully human congregations where everybody will thrive. That's what we want. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy you've given to us. Our righteousness is in heaven and Christ. And so while, of course, we're ever aware of these ongoing sins and we desperately do want to kill them, we thank you that we've been clothed with the new man, Jesus. And now he is our righteousness. We're hidden in Christ. We're clothed with his righteousness. And this is the best news that any of us could ever hear. Thank you so much for that, Lord. I pray that everyone here who's struggling to fight sin in their own lives, Lord, would preach this good news to themselves. It can't be beaten into our ears enough. Lord, uh, be with us now as we continue in worship, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we sing together as a church, rejoicing in the good news, being nourished at the table of God. We love you. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.